Our scripture reading this evening comes from the book of Ezekiel. As we progress in our series on the book of the prophet Ezekiel, we now reach chapter 8. And we're going to read two chapters tonight, a longer read, chapters 8 and 9. It seems long, but I'm being merciful because it's one text from 8 to 11, but I decided to break it up in a couple of sermons. So tonight we see the first half of Ezekiel's vision that begins in chapter 8. We're going to read all of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9. Receive this with faith and with love. This is the word of the Lord to us this night. Thus says the Lord. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes towards the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far away from my sanctuary? But you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, Son of man, Dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall. And behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go, go in and see the vile abominations they are committing here. So I went in and I saw. And there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood, stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He also said to me, you will still see greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, 
were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the Lord of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the men clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said, In my hearing, pass through the city after him, and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall, you, sh you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary." So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, and the city full of injustice. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist, brought back word, saying, I have done as you commanded me. I first heard of the Plutocentric Revolution in a book by Thaddeus Williams called Reflect, published in 2017. It all started this story in 2006 when the International Astronomical Union changed the definition of what is a planet, which ruled out old Pluto from the Elite Nine. 
In his book, Williams imagines the tragic consequences of that move from the perspective of sorry, oh, tiny Pluto. What would happen, we wonder, if Pluto got so mad by its relegation that it staged a rebellion and took the sun's place at the center of the solar system? Who's the dwarf planet now, huh? He would say. Quote, with a surface that is 98% frozen nitrogen and a, ma and a mass less than a quarter of Earth's, Pluto is no match for the sun's glory, says Williams. Pluto's diminished weight, radiance, and warmth would send the entire solar system, or Pluto system now, into chaos. This new Pluto-centric system would last only a few minutes before the, all the other eight planets freeze and start spinning aimlessly out of orbit. We would all die, frozen, in the dark, before we could even see what hit us. I believe the hypothetical, thank God, Pluto-centric revolution tells us a lot about our lives. It reveals to us a simple yet vital truth that we need all the sun is and all it has to offer, its weight, its light, and its heat to keep us alive, which is fairly obvious. Yet this astrophysical insight teaches more about life than what meets the eye. Because if we transport these same concepts to our own lives, we learn more about ourselves than you imagined when I started talking about Pluto. William's point, the author, which is kind of Ezekiel's point in the vision of chapters 8 and 9, is that we need something with weight, with radiance, and with glory to keep our lives and our existence on track. He says, if we place something too small, and too dim at the center of our lives, then the planets in our souls, solar systems, our creativity, intellect, emotions, moral sense, relationships, and so on, will tend toward a state of chaos and lifelessness. So as Ezekiel brings us another divine vision, this time of what is happening in Jerusalem while he lives in Babylon with a small group of exiles, we come face to face with the sad reality that the remnant, the people of God who still live in the land of God, have committed the Pluto-centric crime of abandoning God and are on a fast track to chaos and lifelessness. The question then for us tonight is the same question that they face. What is at the center of your life that keeps you on track, that gives you meaning, joy, security. Tonight we will see that nothing other than God's glory will do for us. But still, we keep looking at other things as our centers of gravity, and there are dreadful consequences for those who do that. In summary, we will see today that glorifying God is a matter of life and death.
Again, that's the summary of this passage. Glorifying God is a matter of death and life. We'll see that in two points this evening. And the first is as simple as idolatry is deadly. Idolatry is deadly. That's the point of the entire chapter 8. The last time we saw Ezekiel, he was lying on his side, wasting away, eating that awful bread. At the sight of those passing by as he embodied his message of impending doom to the house of God. Today, in our text, if you do the math in verse 1, it's September 18, 592 B.C., about 14 months since chapter 8, chapter 4. And we see some elders visiting uh, Ezekiel at his house. Maybe some of his message got through to them, and they wonder if God has given Ezekiel any good, new, more uplifting words since he started his show, so to speak. So in verse 2, we read that God sent his glory and his spirit again to give Ezekiel a vision. He's taken in a vision to Jerusalem, almost as if by force, by the gleaming spirit of God. We read that this glorious presence of God, the same one that we saw in Ezekiel 1, was there in Jerusalem. And throughout this vision, God repeatedly tells Ezekiel to look and see as he shows him a series of abominations, one worse than the previous. So the first, in verse five, verses 5 and 6, we see what is called an image of jealousy. That's an idol image. It's at the city's north gate. And remember, we've covered this, and the text gives us a hint of that again. The north is where the enemies come from. So to protect themselves from further Babylonian harm, the people of God have put an idol at the north gate to block the city's north entrance. This idol, some commentators speculate, that is one of the Canaanite gods, the Canaanite goddess of Asherah. That's their hope for security against their enemies, Asherah. Nice. And then it gets worse. In verses 7 to 13, we see some 70 elders of Israel. It was their lay leadership. Ezekiel can only see them because he finds them through a hole in the wall. For they're hiding in the deep recesses of the temple in the dark. And there they offer incense to idols, to creeping things and loathsome beasts, we read. Emulating a kind of Egyptian ritual to ward off demons. And their justification for doing something that's so clearly an abomination before God is that the Lord does not see them because he has abandoned them. And I think it should be clear for us the irony that God is there showing that to Ezekiel. He sees. He is there with his glory, but they are blind to him. Because they abandoned him to chase false gods for spiritual protection. Nice. And then it gets worse. Verses 14 and 15. Ezekiel sees a group of women crying for Tammuz. 
This is a Babylonian ritual that was a plea to the Babylonian goddess of life and death to restore their good fortunes. The idea of the ritual here is that you mourn over her death so much that she comes back to life and then she blesses you. In the words of a commentator, lamentation for the dead has been substituted for the worship of the living God. Nice. And yes, it gets worse. Finally, in verses 16 and 17, we see that at the inner court of the temple, in front of the altar, where priests would come to worship God, the center of the entire Israelite system of sacrifices and worship, where they would come to sacrifice for their sins and to seek the face of God, some 25 men have turned their backs to Him, to God, and are bowing down and worshiping the Son, worshiping created things instead of the Creator. The picture here of this progression is of total comprehensive idolatry. From the gates of the city to the center of the temple, men, women, leaders, elders, idols from Canaan, from Egypt, from Babylon. And then God summarizes their attitude saying, they put the branch to their nose, which is something that sounds serious and there's no consensus on what that actually means. While the exact meaning of the expression is hard to pin down, the most convincing explanation that I've found is as simple as if God was saying that they were flipping the bird to him. The chapter ends with a verdict that needs no explanation on my part. So let those words echo in your heart. Feel its weight one more time. It says, God says, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ear, my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. What is happening here? What would make God, the God of love and of mercy, say such things to his people? Let me paint you a picture to try to illustrate what Israel is doing. Imagine that as you come from County Line Road to worship here at Trinity next week, some things are slightly different. First, two statues welcome you at the driveway a red, white, and blue donkey on one side, and a red, white, and blue elephant on the other. Then as you enter the entrance lobby downstairs, one announcement on the big, big TV screen catches your attention. It says, buy Larry coins. What are Larry coins, you ask? It's simple, it's just a new cryptocurrency asset that we are selling here at Trinity, which is surely not a Ponzi scheme except that it is. Then, 
you make your way under the ambient music of Taylor Swift, and you reach the auditorium just in time for the service. Our opening hymn in preparation is, I've been waiting all day for a Sunday night, Carrie Underwood's version. And then, of course, after that hymn of preparation, there's only one thing we can do. We gather and bow our heads and watch a football game on the big screen back here. While all of this sounds incredibly stupid, and why not abominable? It shows how stupid and abominable it is to replace the worship of the living God for created things like politics, money, and entertainment. And what is worse, just as the pathetic choices of worship we see in Jerusalem brought up God's wrath on them, all of us here are constantly tempted to do the same with our modern-day idols. Whenever we look to politics to protect us from our perceived enemies, whenever we hold tight to our money for our security, whenever we abuse mindless entertainment to distract us from reality, we are being as abominable as Jerusalem. We are putting Pluto at the center of our lives and wondering why we are so cold and aimlessly in this life. It was one of your prophets, the writer and poet Ralph Waldo Emerson, that summarized this nicely. He once said, quote, A person will worship something, have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute, tribute is paid in secret, in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our loves and our character, he says. Just like the Israelite elders hiding in the dark, thinking God does not see them as they worship blind stone images, we ourselves are being molded every single day of our lives into images of combative, hostile, greedy, and numb idols in this world. And the warning for us this night from chapter 8 of Ezekiel is that God sees all of that. The question then is, do you? Have you seen this? In your life, do you see this, daughters and sons of Adam? We know that God sent his judgment upon Jerusalem. We'll see that even in further detail in chapter 9. What will you do when he comes to judge us? I hope to provide some answers to that in our next point, our final point this evening we find refuge in God's glory only through Jesus. We see that in chapter 9. We find refuge in God's glory only through Jesus. It's interesting that chapter 8 closes with God saying he won't hear the cries of his idolatrous people. And then chapter 9 begins with God himself crying out loud for the executioners of his judgment to come forward 
and this vision. And yet we know that the destruction of Jerusalem ultimately came from Babylonian hands. They will come some four or five years after this day and ravage the city, destroy the temple, and kill most of the people in the city. But with this vision, Ezekiel makes two things very clear for us. The first is that the many sins that led Israel to exile, which has been one of the big questions so far in the book, why is this happening? It's all rooted in idolatry, in this disregard for God, for his covenantal alliance with his people. That's at the root of the problem. And the second thing that this vision makes clear is that when judgment came, when the punishment for breaking their covenant, it was God guiding King Nebuchadnezzar and his armies all along in a bloodbath. These armies are here represented in attacks by six armed goons who will pass through the city and strike, as we read in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 9. Their eyes, mirroring the image of God himself earlier, shall not spare, they shall show no pity. They will kill old men, young men, maidens, little children, women. And then you look around tonight and you see that's exactly the kind of people that we have here tonight. One writer once said, The Lord waits long to be gracious, as if he knew no, he knew not how to smite. Still, he smites at last, as if he knew not how to pity. And that's what he's promising to his people in this text. to come and to smash people like you and me, swiftly, with no mercy. So Ezekiel, looking at the horror of that picture, asked God if he will destroy the remnant. And the text is kind of ambiguous here, and I think on purpose, but verse 8 seems to indicate that only Ezekiel survived when he said that he was alone. It could indicate that. And he cries in anguish and despair. Is that it? Are we done? Are you just going to destroy Jerusalem, ravage Mount Zion, kill everyone? Are you done with us? Is that the end of the line? The promises? The covenants? The hope? And then in verses 9 and 10, when God answers him, he does not offer any hope. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land that the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. You will hardly find harsher words in the Bible. Coming from God. And the point should be obvious to Ezekiel and to us. When men and women, old and young, turn their backs and hearts to God, they get precisely what they ask for. If you think Asherah or a 401k will keep you safe, you will be destroyed. 
If you believe Egyptian incense or the White House will ward off your spiritual enemies, they will come and wait, and then they will leave nothing to tell the story. Again, when we look for Pluto to give us what only the sun can provide, we shouldn't be surprised when we freeze to death. And then it gets worse. Because we look at ourselves and we realize we have all fallen short of that standard. It began with Adam and Eve trusting in themselves and in the serpent to get what only God could give them. Is that it? Before the end of the vision in chapter 9, we see a glimmer just a glimmer of hope shining through the thick stormy clouds of this impending divine judgment. Because together with the six armed goons comes a man in linen. God tells him to pass through Jerusalem before his destruction with one go, put a mark on those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And then God tells the goons to go, but to spare Anyone that had that mark. And it is that man who has the final word when at the end of his mission he returns and says, it is finished. It should all, that should already remind you of someone else. In the actions of this mysterious man, we see that not everyone will be lost. There is a true remnant that will not bow to Canaanite, Babylonian, Egyptian, or American gods. If we despair at the realization that all children of Adam fall short of God's glory, Scripture reminds us all throughout that God provided a holy remnant for us from the seed of Eve, a perfectly righteous man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then you see, when you look at his life, have you seen it? That he never bowed to Satan when he was tempted to do so. He never bowed to the religious or the political influences of his time. He never hesitated to rebuke rich people who love their money way too much. You see that his zeal for his father's worship led him to beat up vendors who turned the temple into a den of robbers. Probably twice. Yet for all of that and some more, he was murdered. And like we read a couple of times in our text, he was beaten up and struck without mercy for crimes against God that we committed, not him. He died for those things you do in the dark when you think no one's watching. Or to paraphrase Rolf Emerson, Jesus died for those things we pay secret tributes in the dark recesses of our hearts because we would think that down there not even God will see it. Yet in his life and his ministry on earth, he was also marked for our benefit, 
And then you see at the beginning of his ministry, he was baptized in the waters, publicly marked as the beloved son of God. This very Jesus, being innocent of any sin, rose from the dead on the third day, marking with the same divine love those who turn their backs to their idolatrous ways and find their only source of comfort, hope, and joy in him. And then it gets even better because before going up again to meet his father and tell his father that he had done as he was commended, he commended his disciples to go out into the world and baptize other disciples. He commanded us to mark his remnant with the name of the Father who sent him, of the Son who saved us, and of the Spirit who unites us to himself. So our glimmer of hope in this text is this mysterious man in linen pointing us to Jesus and the hope of salvation from God's righteous wrath from our idolatry. He points in a certain way to this baptismal font right here. Reminds us, reminding us that those who are baptized and discipled in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are marked as safe and out of bounds from God's impending and sure judgment to come. So when God turns his face to us now, to those who have received that mark, even in moments of idolatry, he sees the purity and the holiness of his son. On September 18, 592 BC, God took Ezekiel to the inner courts of his people's idolatry and asked, Do you see? Today, November 5th, 2023 AD, he is asking the same of you. Do you see? Do you see who you are in this text? Do you see what God has done for you? Do you see Jesus living and dying for you? If you don't know where to look, look at this font right here. It tells us of our marking in his name and our hope of being holy, being made holy again in him. This should be a great comfort for those who are baptized in these waters. So if you do not have that mark, if you have never been baptized or publicly identified as part of God's people, I can only ask before I finish, what are you waiting for? Let us pray. O Lord, our God, Teach us, we pray, to ask rightly for the right blessings. Steer the vessel of our life toward Jesus Christ, your Son, our great, greatest blessing, the safe haven of all storm-tossed souls. Show us the course where we should go. Renew a willing spirit within us. Let your spirit curb our errant senses and enable us to that which is our true good to glorify you and in all our works evermore to rejoice in your glorious presence. In Jesus' name we pray all of this and together his people say,
Amen.